Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. What's been on my mind lately has been essentially everything revolving around time. What really is time? How do people think about it? What can be done with time, if anything? What do we do about time? How does it affect our behavior? C.S. Lewis said something very interesting about this topic at one point, talking about the fact that our own awareness of the fact that we are in time is almost like a fish being surprised at being wet, being in water. It is our environment, and yet we're astonished at the very fact, or at least it's a part of our environment, and we're astonished at the very fact that we're in it. And that seems a very odd thing, almost as if, while yes, it is our environment, we are not perhaps limited to it. We consider it, we notice it passing us by. So first, I want to talk about how people deal with time in fiction. And I have three major categories of the workings with time in fiction. And, of course, given that we have never achieved any sort of time travel, this is merely just kind of nerd talk, but uh, like categorizing things in any case, and I think it might be somewhat useful towards at least possibly constructive thoughts on the matter. First of all, I think there are some very shoddy ideas around time travel that are out there. These I simply call deja vu time travel. And it's named after the Denzel Washington movie, Deja Vu, which to me really does a travesty of time travel in general. The idea is that one is stuck in a time loop, and going back in time, you end up simply redoing the very actions which caused you or coaxed you towards doing time travel in the first place. Some disaster or perhaps just some strange mystery. But that that would not be so much of an issue if the end essentially was the same as the beginning in every way. But in the case of deja vu time travel, the end is different from the beginning. Somehow the character literally redoing everything that had been done that led them down this path to begin with somehow does something different by the end and changes the beginning, or at least the beginning incident that brought the character to this course. I think that's fairly poor unless you start bringing in the a kind of multiverse theory where it's not actually the same person doing the same thing over and over again. It's a different iteration of the same person, maybe from a different universe, maybe from a different timeline. If that was invoked, then I suppose it would make some degree of sense, but it still is pulling in phenomenon after phenomenon in that case in order to try to make some sense out of, in my opinion, some fairly poor writing. Or they typically don't do that, they just make it a closed, singular time system, and yet somehow they still break out of the loop in the end anyway. The second form of time travel fiction that I have seen is what I call butterfly time travel. 
what I mean by butterfly time travel is essentially uh, an extension of the butterfly effect. What if a butterfly flapping, flapping its wings in Texas causes a hurricane in Japan or something like that? It's the idea of small actions causing massive results that are highly unpredictable because, of course, if you change something in the past, or in that case, do something in the present and then see how it ends in the future, you might have tipped one tiny little hair, and I don't mean that literally, but one tiny little hair that ends up causing all kinds of alterations in the future, which in this case might be your present, that, again, you may have had no idea about. As much as I am not particularly a fan of Back to the Future 2, I think that that movie does an excellent job showing the chaos that butterfly time travel can really wreak on the world if it was a real thing. Because your decisions may affect the decisions of the next person, which affects the decisions of the next person, and so on and so forth, you could end up with a very different universe than you had before you went through time. The third sort of time travel that I have seen in fiction, I thought was limited to the correct version, in my opinion, of a time loop, but it actually isn't. And this is the reason why it's been on my mind. I just recently saw another movie that falls into this third category. The third category I have labeled providential time travel. This is a version of time travel that is not done by human ingenuity of some kind. It's not future tech or current tech that somehow just almost magically happens to go through time, um, perhaps through the time-space curve, which I'll be talking about in a little bit. That's what they use in Deja Vu. No, in this case, providential time travel is some sort of mysterious time travel that just kind of happens. Maybe somebody, such as in the case of Kate and Leopold, another example of this, somebody finds a small and temporary tear in the fabric of time and finds a way to pass through that tear. Um, perhaps people start switching places, but they don't realize that they're also traveling through time. I'm not going to say the name of the movie, but some people will know what I'm talking about. Anyways, but the, the point is, it's not something that somebody invents, some ability that somebody gains. It's a discovery that somebody just happens to make. And what is invoked is almost a third party causing this time travel to either become possible or to happen in the first place. And it's almost like somebody or something intends for individuals to travel through time in order to cause an effect that is specifically desired. In the case of the movie Kate and Leopold, the time loop is there from the very beginning. If you know the end of the movie, you're going to be paying more attention, and you will notice at the beginning of the movie, the end of the movie is already taking place. And by the end of the movie, the main time-traveling character describes the fact that at first he thought the time travel was simply going at one or another point of a singular line, whereas, in fact, the universe is shaped, at least as far as time is concerned, in a four-dimensional pretzel. In other words, the time travel was already there, you're simply going through it. So one's own future... By the, de by the design that is already there may be in the past, 
by going through already set time travel. And this is, of course, what occurs. Kate, by the end, goes back to the time of Leopold after Leopold had been pulled to the future by the main time traveler and ends up completing the loop that was already supposed to happen. So to me, this brings in some sort of spirit or maybe alien or God into the picture, making the time travel or making sure that the time travel occurs through an already providential intended time shift or time travel. And there are versions, again, I just watched this movie that did this, there is a actual time shift, something actually does change. But there's a very strong implication that that change is desired by some powerful, perhaps spiritual third party. At least very, very powerful. So those are my three major categories. There is, again, the deja vu time travel, the butterfly time travel, and the providential time travel. Now let's turn from fiction to science. And not just science, but another form of categorization that I have put in, and I'll be peppering in some science while we go along, or at least what I know of it. I've taken a look at time and really thought through it quite a bit, and I've tried to figure out that not in a fictional realm of, you know, the possibility of traveling through time, but in the real world where, as far as we know, time travel has never occurred, what is it? What is it in our reality? How do we interact with that? With it, how do we observe it, etc.? So I've come up with again three categories to kind of look through time with, sort of lenses, if you will, to try to understand time. So first of all, there is what I call process time. In other words, the moving of bodies in space or the, uh, the hands of a clock going from minute to minute, hour to hour, and so on. It is simply things going from here to there. It is processes taking place. This, to me, is one way in which we can observe the effects of time. The Earth goes around the sun in a very predictable measurement of time. And in fact, of course, the spinning of the Earth and the travel of the Earth around the Sun is one of the ways we have found to measure time. 24 hours in a day, approximately. 300 and, what is it? I can't remember exactly, but 350 odd or whatever it is, days in a year. It's been a while since I was in grade school. Anyway, um... 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes an hour, in an hour, the Gregorian calendar as we currently have it. We have learned to measure time through these processes that cause such things as the four seasons and so on. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons why I have a great deal of skepticism whenever scientists try to tell us just how long the universe has been here and so on. Um, I'll go into that a little bit more, but how do they really know how to measure time when the very basis of the measurement of time we have is founded on the spin of the Earth and the travel of the Earth around the Sun. You go too much, you go too far out of that, and where the heck even are you? Do you know what's happening? The second category of how we perceive time is what I would call passage. 
the passage part of time has to do with not just repetitive processes or one thing going here or there, but more sort of having to do with our sense of time, how we can notice the fact that without you know, bringing in things like age and the breaking down of things, such as the second law of thermodynamics or, you know, us going from color to just gray or white hair, but rather the fact that more than just, you know, planets spinning around the sun or the earth turning from day to day and so on and so forth, pivoting, if you want to call it that, whatever, spinning, um, is things changing, personalities change. The topography of the Earth itself can change. The weather changes. And we ourselves go through massive events from time to time that may change culture, it may change economy, it may change our religious perspectives. We find ourselves going through these various processes, but they're not just, again, the repetitive processes through which we measure time, but it is how we, as human beings, tend to notice, again, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, the flow of time. We can sense, even, again, without the confirmation of entropy, which is the third category, we can notice the fact that there are things happening that give us a general sense of time beyond the merely repetitious. So then again, as I just mentioned a moment ago, entropy is the other way in which we see time going by, or can observe it. And this, yes, is essentially the second law of thermodynamics. It is the breaking down of uranium. It is the whitening of hair and the eventual death of human beings and animals and all the rest of it. The eventual heat death of the universe. It is the breaking down of all things. Now, in these three categories, again, all I'm really trying to point out is that there are different ways in which we sense or detect or observe the passage of time. Time seems to give us the very capacity to change, at least in my opinion. We wouldn't have passage if we didn't have time. This, to me, as a not just a philosopher, but also as a theologian, or one who likes theology, um, I distinguish this difference between eternity and time. If we were in eternity, perhaps, there wouldn't be passage, nor would there be entropy. Now, this is just my own theory. I don't see any reason why there wouldn't still be processes this thing moving from here to there, etc. But why would there be passage and why would there be entropy? If in eternity all things are, especially in heaven, God's eternity, if all things are perfect, they do not need to change to improve. But anyway, that's again going into the theoretical. But I do think that it is interesting, breaking down time in this sense, that if we can abstract at least entropy from the other two processes or observations of time, then we can see that perhaps there might be a different sort of mode of existence or an existence slightly or entirely outside of time 
that therefore would not include the breaking down of things, the death, and so on. Now, now we start heading into what I consider the prickly points, the difficult aspects of time and how we relate to it. Because the very fact that we know that we can sense ourselves going through time brings with it a sort of temptation. And that temptation is perhaps to try to master it in some way, travel through it. We want to master time as an aspect of our environment in the same way that we want to master things like weather or the economy or what have you. We want to stand above it in some way. We want to grasp it. We see it almost as, for some of us, we see it almost as a cage around us and we want to break out. Or at least break out sufficiently so that we can start using time rather than time using us. You can even see it in the ancient world. Before they really thought of this idea of time travel, they had myths like the fountain of youth. They wanted to get out of entropy. They wanted to live forever and not have this destiny of death brought to them by the passage of time. Now, before I go into that, I want to talk a little bit a little bit on the scientific level, as I said before. On the scientific level, there's a few things that I have learned about time that I find very interesting. From Albert Einstein, of course, we get the curvature of, or the understanding of the curvature of space-time. What this specifically means, as far as I have understood it, is that time and gravity are connected. If you were, for example, to have a clock at the top of a mountain and at the bottom of that same mountain, the hands of the clock, not because of some mechanical issue, but because of the time-space curve, would be moving at very slightly different rates. And if you were somehow floating in orbit above planet Earth, you would age at a different rate than somebody on Earth. Of course, that's assuming that you could survive in the vacuum of space, which is not possible without a suit. And even then, only for a short time. Anyway, so we know that time-space is curved. Now, that doesn't mean that we ever get to go, uh, ever can see time moving backwards, but it does mean that based on our position within the shape of the universe, which essentially is a description of gravity, we will experience the passage of time, or time will operate on us at a different rate. So as I said a moment ago, the great temptation is for us to try to master time. And as some of these scientific and then science fiction ideas have come to the foreground, that temptation becomes a little bit more enticing because we begin to think that we might be able to manipulate it in some way. Even if we never see time moving backwards, but we do see time moving at different rates, maybe there's a way to bend it further. Maybe we could change the flow of time in us to such an extent that we could travel backwards. Now, the first thing that I want to bring up is not exactly in this area. It's not exactly what science has to say about it, but what science has theorized about the possibility of time travel in general. 
and this will dovetail us very quickly into the theological issues. What I have heard from science on the issue of specifically time travel is that if it were to be possible, we would have to find something in existence which essentially stores time. In other words, the present would have to be not all that actually exists in the course of time-space. We would have to know that there is a, essentially another time to go to. So something that is storing all the memories, all the actions, all the everything that has ever happened in the universe going even one second back all the way to the beginning of the universe itself. And similarly, if we were to move forward in time, there would have to be some sort of storage unit or whatever you want to call it, like a flash drive USB in your laptop or, com or desktop computer, st having stored already the events of the future, feeding it into the present. And if that were the case, then of course we could move, at least theoretically, through the course of time. Now, as I said, this immediately invokes the issue of God. If God is really there, as I do believe, we consider him to be, as we say, above time. He is not just omnipotent and omniscient, but, of course, he is above time. In fact, created time. And the question is, what does that mean? If the past still exists in the eyes of God, then at least in some sense, it still does exist. But is that the case? That, to me, is a very interesting question. And in similar fashion, we could argue because God does tell us about the future and has told people about the future many times in the past, and as a matter of fact, God is not the only one rumored to have done so. Other spirits, other forces of darkness in many cases, or the emissaries of God, have told people what was going to happen, and it did exactly as these spiritual beings have said. That raises the question in this case, does it not? Does time already exist, and they're simply looking at it and telling you what they see? Now, many people assume, who are Christians, theologians, etc., that yes, to the spiritual realm, that time already exists, which would strongly imply also that the past continues to exist in some sense. They could simply go there if they wanted to. I personally am not so sold on this theory. See, if we were to assume, for example, and I don't think that this is necessarily impossible from God, but if we were to assume that God or some spiritual force could simply put their finger or, you know, go back to some time in the past, say God could go back to Sinai and not be there, <laughs> not interact with Moses on the mountain of Sinai, and how much would that change history? Now, we would be powerless to do anything about that, because, of course, if time goes as many of us think that it goes, if spiritual entities, including God, of course, could go back into the past and change something, then the whole world would change, quote-unquote, around us in that very instant to incorporate every single alteration. And this is a bit of theory, I understand. But 
it would be something like this. The universe around us would almost change in perhaps a flash, perhaps gradually, whatever the case. But so also would all of our memories, all of our perception of how the time flow has been up to this point. The knowledge of this changed past would not to us be anything new. It would be the knowledge we already had in the first place. This lands us in some very difficult questions. For all we know, therefore, time could be shifting over and over again all over the place, and we would not have any way of confirming that knowledge, because it would have already been there to begin with. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this up is I think that the idea of, shall we say, God time travel, not providential time travel, but God time travel, God being the time traveler, going from point to point to point in history and altering things, actually smacks against the very nature of God as we know it. One of the things that we know very well about God, at least among not Cal <laughs> those who are not Calvinists, is that God allows us to have free will. He lets us make our own decisions. If God is omniscient and omnipotent, and has also chosen to give us our free will, why would there ever be something that he would want or need or consider good to go back in time and change, even if he could? What if, on the other hand, he created time in such a way that it does have one relationship with eternity, and that relationship is that the present is really now? The present is all that there is in the time series, period. No existence of future or past in any objective way, except in the sense that the, the past continues to affect the present through the actions that have already occurred, and the future is where we inevitably are going towards merely at different rates given our position in the time-space curvature. If God made time of such a nature as that in such a way that even the spiritual forces cannot manipulate it, they cannot go into the future and change things, they cannot go into the past and change things, then to me that shows God creating the universe to facilitate his respect for the free will of the free-willed individuals, human beings that he has put in it and to allow them to do what he wants, and yet, because of his omnipotence and his omniscience, he has already arranged it in such a way, as I've said in previous podcasts, where Paul argues that God puts us in the places and times that he wants us to be in, he has already so arranged it that his plans will succeed exactly as he knows they will, as he has preordained that they will, even without having to manipulate anything directly. And I, I do use that word choice with choice, manipulate. He certainly has relationships and he does interact, but I don't see him manipulating. So let's just go with my theory, at least hypothetically for a moment, and ask the question then, how is it that God and in some cases other spirits have told things about the future that came true? Well, I think with the other spirits, in many cases you could very quickly see that they themselves made sure they were in fact merely telling you what they were about to do. In some cases, this is true of God also. They're simply telling you their intentions. 
For example, when the angel comes, I think it was uh, Gabriel who came to Mary and told him that she was going to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Well, he was merely informing Mary of what God had already chosen to do and that he was going to do it. But in other cases, if God doesn't necessarily see the future like pages in a book that he can simply flip forward to and read, but instead knows in his omniscience what all of our decisions and all the complex interactions of the physical world with everything else uh, in the universe is going to cause in the days to come, he can simply tell us what he already knows about the future, and it will come true exactly as he said. That, to me, doesn't put him any less in charge of time. He, you could say, set up the entire domino rally and tilted the first domino. He knows every single one of them. He may even have bound himself, in a sense, by the way that he created time, to the present and the present only. I'm not saying that as a fact, it's just a theory. But that doesn't change the fact that he, being God, would know everything that has happened in the past with perfect knowledge and knows everything that will occur in the finite future, at least in the sense of present moments passing into the future, that will occur. And he doesn't need, he has no reason to miss a single detail. Now, this starts getting into our temptation. The first temptation is, of course, where I opened up. The temptation of time travel itself. I just mentioned briefly, what if the spirits did that? What if spiritual beings actually existing, which I do believe, of course, could go back into the past and change things? There would be nothing that we could do about it. That level of power is absolutely stunning and dangerous. If there was some sort of time storage compartment in reality that human beings could travel to and from and change things in the past, those who remain in the present would be powerless to do anything about it. For all we know, such people could cause the very end of the world as a whole. They could cause nuclear war, perhaps during the Cold War, as many people did fear, and wipe out, through the changing of time-space history, all of humanity. The question I would raise in a theological perspective is, is that something that God would even make theoretically possible? Leave out the question of our capacity to develop technology that could take advantage of that, even making it possible in the first place, for us or for the spiritual realm. I think that it would be a very wise thing to do to not make that possible at all, but instead to, in a sense, link time with eternity, as C.S. Lewis called it, eternity is simply the unbound now. Time linking with eternity, still has now as an objective and real moment, but it is bound by many other things. Things, in our case, presently, such as entropy. And by the way, this is a brief anecdote, but I do think that God brought the entropy and passage of time into the universe to give us the advantage of the capacity to change. If we had been kept in an, eternal, in, in an eternal state, there's no reason to think that we could alter. 
But having already made the decision to rebel against God, we would have been stuck in that state, perhaps, if that is one of the aspects of eternity, as I theorized earlier. For him to invoke the entropy and passage aspects of time into our existence is tantamount, perhaps, to the ability to change. In this case, the ability to go back to God. A lot of theoretical questions there, too. It's just some of the other things that I have pondered. Well, let's go back. So I don't think that time travel is something necessarily that God would, in his omniscience, have even given anybody, maybe even including himself, the capacity to do. It is, in a sense, in one sense far too powerful, and in another sense almost useless. Because, of course, in the universe as we know it now, if you did change something about the past, many people would probably still have made the same decisions they would by now anyway. Who knows? It's hard, again, to really predict these things, going back to the butterfly time travel example. We don't really know the kind of changes we would be making, and God, if he is omniscient, truly would have no need of making any changes because this would be the universe he more or less intended all the while. Again, not in his perfect will, but in keeping with his respect for free will, allowing us to do things that are against his perfect will. Anyways, don't want to go too deep into the theology, but it certainly does invoke it quite a bit. So finally, I want to go into two now, <laughs> kind of being hypocritical here, uh, specifically theological issues. The first being eschatology. That is, as I have mentioned it before, the study of the end of the world, the end times, the apocalypse, whatever you want to call it. This is a massive temptation for people. The idea that we can know things about the future by simply studying numbers and references and perhaps traditions and processes in the Bible and try to see or understand things that will occur on the basis of prophecy and so on that is in the scripture. This, to me, really lines up with a lot of other cultural movements, which, interestingly enough, aligns with the climate change propaganda. What I mean is, the idea that we can know things about the apocalypse, about the end of the world, gives us the impression that our generation is extremely extremely important. Because, of course, there's one thing that you always know about an eschatologist. They believe that the end of the world is tomorrow, essentially, right? And I don't mean literally tomorrow. They think it's coming imminently. They always think it's just around the corner. The temptation to believe that is the temptation to believe that our generation is of particular note, that we're going to be alive to see this amazing catastrophic event. In exactly the same way, the propaganda of climate change gives us this concept that we not only are living in a time where the world might go through heat death or become Tatooine or something like that, but but in addition, we can do something to stop it. We can be the heroes of the world if we just give a bunch of money to the government. <laughs> and in similar fashion, eschatologists might try to push efforts of evangelism and mission work because the end is nigh. 
And if we don't save people tomorrow, they're all going to perish in hell flame because we weren't active enough. What this really is in both cases is actually fear porn. We are being sold the idea of imminent end. And it tries to inspire either action in some cases or perhaps lethargy. Eh, the end of the world is coming. I can't really do anything about it, so who cares? And what this ends up doing, again, in both places, in both cases rather, is allowing the people who are spreading this propaganda to do whatever the heck they want. In the case of the politicians, they get a bunch of our money for largely useless ends that they don't even use to try to help their, quote, climate change agenda in most cases. And they could just grow fat on our wages, <laughs> well, on our blood money, essentially. And take full advantage of our gullibility. Fear sells, much like porn sells. It's a deep, weak point in the human psyche. But, again, I'm trying to relate this, or I'm relating this back to time. The idea of predicting the heat death of the world or the apocalypse is also tempting in the sense that we know something special about the future, and we can predict it, and we can change the future if we change our behavior today. That's very tempting. And, again, it gets to our temptation to master time. I don't think that's quite, a, quite as potent in this case as the fear porn part, but it's still part of the temptation. Now, this last thought is really the catalyst of this entire series of thoughts on time that I'm bringing to you today. This is, again, a theological issue, which is God telling us specific things about the future. I don't mean just prophecy. I mean visions, messages, what have you, that God may give to a Christian personally. Very often, God still does the same thing that he has always been doing. He gives them in dream-like format, or sometimes literally dreams. He's not specifically direct about what this is talking about or even when this is talking about, whether it be the past, the present, or the future. But it seems to me that modern people are all agog for prophecy. They don't just think that things are talking about the future. They want messages from God to always be talking about the future. Now go back to the scriptures and read the prophets. How much of what they actually said had to do with the future? Certainly there were some things, quite a bit of things. And that was one of the reasons why they were called prophets. But a great deal of what they did was talk about the present. They tried to minister to the people of Israel telling them what they were doing in the present was going to create, going to manifest a very bad future if they kept it up. In some cases, the people did repent, and something that God was telling them was going to happen if they didn't repent, he actually reneged on. He didn't end up doing it. Oftentimes he did it later because the people went back to their pig slop 
but he didn't do it in the time that he originally said he was going to do it. He actually delayed or canceled it altogether in some cases. The prophets more often were there to admonish. They were there to stir up the people and try to get them to acknowledge where they were at. And I see this in my own circles. There are people who will talk about things that they believe they received from God. And I don't doubt that part. I just, I'm a skeptic. <laughs> I even consider that in my own case. Was this actually from God or was it just me? Anyways, that aside, the temptation, it seems, the constant idea of why God gave us this image or message or whatever is he's telling me something that's going to happen. Why? Why would we believe that? I could tell you in pretty good detail some of these specific things that God has told me. And can I think of one? Well, I can think of a few that might have something to do with the future. Or sorry, absolutely would if they turn out to be from God. But he's also reminded me that in the Old Testament there is a particular test for prophecy. It is, does it actually end up taking place in the way that it was said? And if it doesn't, then it wasn't prophetic. And that specifically had to do with a human prophet. You know, that guy is not a prophet Prophet, if what he says doesn't come true. Without any alterations to what he said, of course. But anyway, if at the same time we believe that we've been told something from God, which really can't be put in any other context except it's in the future, then if it doesn't happen, then you probably weren't hearing from God. Personally, I think when it comes to listening to the voice of God, we have to be aware of what we want too dang much. And if there's something that we think we've heard from God about, and it has to do with specifically something we struggle with as an idol, in other words, we want it so much that it takes away our focus from God, then very likely we're not listening to the voice of God, we're listening to the voice of our own desires. So with that as kind of a brief digression, I just want to point out that even when we may think that we have a voice or have a message from God having to do with the future, skepticism is welcome, in my opinion. But I'm talking about skepticism having to do with this desire this temptation to think that everything we're getting from God has to do with the future. Why? Most of the messages, sometimes in image form, sometimes in just words, from God have had to do with, go with what is going on right now. Or, in some cases, what was just beginning to happen and a little bit about what it was going to do. And in dream format, you know, cryptic and kind of puzzle-like, but through the course of time, I figured out what it really meant, and I realized, again, that it had to do with the time in which I received the vision or the word. And I'm not talking about, you know, I've received visions like I've gone into a trance or something like that. I would be welcome for that in some sense, but that's kind of not my forte. I'm not Peter. Anyways, um, no, it's just been kind of like, daydreams almost in some cases. But I keep hearing people talking about God gave me this image about this relationship or this job or whatever and they're constantly wanting to wanting to essentially interpret it in the sense that 
they now have a special knowledge about what's coming. And I see them go through the events that they go through, and I'm like, no, no, no. He was showing you a mirror. He was telling you, trying to get you to see something that you refused to see at the time. You're holding on to this too tight, or you're causing your own suffering, or something like that. Something that because of the passion of the moment, in many cases, we don't want to acknowledge. So he holds up the mirror in, a for, in the format of some cryptic vision or something like that, or perhaps a statement that's more like a riddle, trying to get us to see. And didn't Jesus do this? Consider it. God spoke in stories. He spoke in analogies. He spoke in parables. He didn't just deliver the hard facts to people, and I think that's very wise, because when we are caught in those moments of passion, the one thing we don't want to do is acknowledge our own blindness, is acknowledge our own faults. So God gives it to us in cryptic format so that we have to think about it, and through the process of that thinking, our defenses might just come down. But anyways, this craving for prophecy in my opinion, is a bad temptation. This craving to know things about the future, in my opinion, is unhealthy. We want to try to project ourselves in the future. We want to be special. We want to know something that nobody else knows. That's the temptation. But more often than not, what we really need wisdom on is now. What we need to know more about is where we're at, where our feet are planted in this instant. We need illumination right there. So with that, I've kind of expended everything that I had to talk about. I know that I um, didn't really have a nice bow to tie around it, but this was a little bit more freestyle. I just wanted to talk about things that have, as I always do, been on my mind, but this one's a little bit more haphazard. So I hope, as always, you found it interesting and maybe one or two or all of the major points will stick in your minds. And if that's the case, then I've done exactly what I love doing the most, getting people to think. Have a great day.